0: Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Patty Hearst are insane. Her grandfather, William Randolph Hearst, created the largest newspaper, magazine, radio, and movie business in the world making Patty an heiress to an unprecedented media empire. When she was 19 years old, however, she was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army. After two months as a hostage, she joined the cause of her captors and became a gun-toting terrorist. She hand-built bombs, robbed banks, and learned her way around submachine guns. And when the cops finally caught her, she claimed she'd been brainwashed by her captors. But despite her terrorizing experiences with the SLA, Patty Hearst later made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Prince's Orchestra performing Stolen Sweets in 1917. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to William Friedkin's The Exorcist. And why would I play you that specific slice of pea soup projectile vomiting cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one film in America on February 4th, 1974. And that was the day that the Symbionese Liberation Army ripped Patty Hearst from the comfort of her Berkeley apartment, beginning one of the most shocking media sensations of the 20th century. On this episode, gun-toting terrorists, hand-built bombs, tea soup projectile vomiting cheese, and Patty Hearst. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season five, Hollywoodland. quiet. Nobody gets hurt. The black automatic pistol hovered an inch from Patty Hearst's face. She had prepared for this. Your family's worth millions, the press dub you an American newspaper heiress, you practically expect to hear that cliché movie thread at least once in your life. Maybe in San Simeon, maybe on a balcony at Hearst Castle, but not here, in a cramped apartment outside of UC Berkeley. Patty stared down at the barrel of the pistol. She focused intently on the intruder in front of her, so intently that she didn't see a second burglar grab her from behind. He tossed her to the ground, dragged her by the neck down the hallway, his nails dug into her skin as he swept the floor with her. The strangers barked at Patty. Where did she keep the safe? Patty was dumbfounded. There was no safe. She barely kept more on hand than her $300 monthly allowance. That was fine. The home invaders weren't actually looking for money. They had another prize in mind. February 4th, 1974. Patty writhed on the floor of her apartment. A woman bound Patty's hands behind her back with nylon, and then she stuffed a racquetball into Patty's mouth to gag her. Patty spotted her fiancé's wallet on the floor, left in the exact spot where he tossed it before fleeing. Take anything you want, he cried. That's exactly what the strangers were going to do. The team of burglars moved like a trained army. Massive weapons, precise actions, stone serious faces these people did their research they knew there was no security at 2603 benvenu Ave. they knew there was little traffic too no bystanders no busybodies bingo one man dragged patty down the front steps of the apartment she squirmed as her body thumped down the stairs her bathrobe dragged through the dirt she kicked off her fuzzy blue slippers in the struggle it was no use The stranger wrangled her into the frigid trunk of a stolen Chevy Impala, wrapped some nylon around her eyes as a blindfold, and slammed the door. Patty's struggle went silent. She curled up in a ball for warmth. A bathrobe and panties weren't enough for a 40-degree winter evening. She felt the Chevrolet lurch forward, and her stomach lurched with it. Fuck, it was over. She felt the car speed away from the crime scene. The vandals weren't concerned about getting caught. In fact, They wanted the cops to know who had dropped by that evening. Patty's kidnappers left a clue, a package of 38 caliber bullets, cyanide filled bullets, a sign of something ludicrous, powerful, deadly. A sign of the Symbionese Liberation Army, SLA for short. The cops would recognize the cyanide filled bullets as the same kind that killed Marcus Foster, the first black school superintendent in Oakland, California. He was the first person caught in the SLA's crosshairs. The SLA didn't see Foster as a symbol of racial equality in America. To them, he was a goddamn fascist pawn of the goddamn fascist government. The SLA gunned down Foster with eight cyanide-filled bullets in November of 1973. Then, they shot off a communique to the press, informing journalists who'd done the crime. The SLA also had to inform the papers who the fuck they were. The Symbionese Liberation Army was a new left-wing organization on the precipice of terrorizing the Bay Area. Its members were unified by every type of radicalism, Maoism, Marxism, a hatred of the American government which they deemed a fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. They were against Nixon, against Vietnam, against oppression, and as a quote-unquote vanguard group they planned to initiate change by inspiring the general population to rebel against the United States government. And their goal was symbiosis, hence, symbionese. Their first attempt at rebellion failed miserably. The assassination of Marcus Foster didn't inspire action against the government. It inspired people to mourn. Worse, two of their men were arrested for Foster's murder, and now they rotted in San Quentin prison forfeiting two members was a major loss. The SLA's so-called army was barely a dozen people strong to begin with, and their escaped jailbird leader, Donald DeFries, a.k.a. Sink, called himself the SLA's General Field Marshal. As the stolen Chevrolet cruised back to the SLA's safe house in Daly City, Sink was the General Field Marshal of a whopping eight people. He needed those two men back. He needed a lot of things. Sink craved respect and notoriety for his operation. He needed the SLA to mean something. He was convinced the SLA would rise to the upper echelon of political groups once they taught the United States government a lesson. And that very lesson was curled up in the trunk of the stolen Chevy Impala. Few surnames were more notorious than Hearst in the 20th century. Patty was the granddaughter of the American newspaper tycoon, William Randolph Hearst founder of the San Francisco Examiner. You might know the fictionalized version of Hearst as the protagonist in Citizen Kane. The Hearst 90,000 square foot estate in San Simeon was one of the crown jewels of American architecture. Patty Hearst's family wasn't just rich, they were the picture of wealth. Like a 20th century clan of Trump's, the Hearst had everything the SLA needed, money, notoriety, and power with the press. Reports of her kidnapping were guaranteed to be front page news. While the SLA milked the media coverage, they planned to use Patty as a bargaining chip to spring their two men from San Quentin. They could probably demand some cash from the hearse's bottomless bank account in the process. Minutes passed, maybe hours. Patty couldn't tell. She lost all concepts of time blindfolded in the darkness of the trunk. She felt someone hoist her from the car, they carried her to another dark cavern. She heard the door inside close with a click, locked. An earthy musk permeated the space. Patty felt around for the walls. She could barely stretch out her arms. Her stomach sank. This wasn't a room. This was a closet, complete with a dingy mattress on the floor, cut to fit the six-foot-by-two-foot space. Sink barked at Patty from the other side of the closet door. Patty wasn't kidnapped, he assured her. She'd been arrested taken by a combat unit, he said, of the Symbionese Liberation Army. Her father, Randolph Hearst, was a corporate enemy of the people, he said, and she had to pay for his crimes in this cramped closet. According to the general, General Sink, Patty had nothing to fear except the fascist police, should they attempt to rescue her. She could sense his shit-eating grin from the other side of the door. The SLA had a new communicator draft. This one arrived with a few presents for the press. One tape from SYNC, plus Patty's mobile oil car, just in case anyone doubted that the SLA actually had kidnapped her. But that wasn't all the SLA needed from Patty. They desired a tape from her, too. The SLA kindly drafted a statement for Patty to read. They told her to personalize the script with her own words. Patty Hurst's first performance was about to begin. Mom, Dad, I'm okay. Patty's words echoed across America on February 7th, 1974, three days since her disappearance. The SLA required the press to play the tapes in full, lest they jeopardize Patty's safety. The news was a triple threat of fame, fortune, and felonies. America hadn't seen a kidnapping like this since the Lindbergh baby. I wanna get out of here. The only way to do it is their way. And I just hope you'll do what they say, Dad, and you'll do it quickly. What the SLA said was that they required an act of good faith before they could negotiate. They needed to know the Hearst were serious about this recon mission. Sink demanded a month's worth of weekly food distribution for poor Californians. Specifically, he needed $70 worth of meat, vegetables, and dairy products for every person in the state with a welfare card, or a social security pension card, or food stamps, disabled veteran cards, or medical cards. The list of demands went on. The SLA's logo, a seven-headed cobra, had to be on display for the entire circus. The distribution must begin one week from that day, and there were to be three more weekly distributions. The oppressors would feed the oppressed. No food, no patty. If the police or the FBI came knocking in the meantime, patty would be executed with a cyanide-filled bullet, of course, and the SLA would not hesitate. Food swept across the streets like ammunition. Turkeys, hams, potatoes, boxes of rice, canned vegetables, they all rained from the delivery trucks. The turkeys proved to be the most valuable weapon. They weighed the most, hurt the most, good for bruising. But really, any meat would leave a mark. And those canned goods could really fuck up someone's face too. The crowd gathered in Oakland was beyond pushing and shoving for their share of the bounty. They were throwing and grabbing, shattering glass and stabbing. When the sun rose on February 22, 1974, it cast rays on 5,000 famished families, each eager to take home their share of the bounty secured by the SLA. Food distribution in Oakland was supposed to begin at noon, but the violence started much earlier than that. The line started at your black Muslim bakery a local bake shop at the epicenter of distribution. From there, the dense crowd spilled into the streets. No one could pass through, not even the food delivery trucks. One driver laid on the horn as if to say, move your asses if you want to eat tonight. A hangry onlooker responded by launching a bottle through the truck's window. Fuck that guy. The food fight was on. The bounty promised by the Hearst family was supposed to be a full-on feast. A rack of lamb, a picnic ham, steaks eggs milk rice potatoes fresh fruits instant cocoa mix even boxes of macaroni and cheese each box of food weighed roughly 27 pounds the crowd was starving hungry for the food that was owed them and hungry for violence feeding this many americans at once was an unprecedented feat the Hearst family was woefully unprepared for what unfolded in oakland the distribution should have cost hundreds of millions of dollars Hearst coughed up $2 million instead. $500,000 of his own savings and $1.5 million from the Hearst Foundation. Not enough moolah meant not enough food, and the math was staggering. $2 million allocated for a $400 million job. 21 hospitalizations, one lost eye, one stabbed police officer. Thousands of people left without food. Instead of taking food home to their families, people were stepping on it scraping it off the asphalt if it could even be salvaged. Teenage gangs pilfered the spoils from the needy. People catapulted meat from the delivery trucks into the crowd, and the crowd launched the food right back. In three other cities across San Francisco and Los Angeles, the food distribution went as planned, but the radio blasting near Patty Hearst's closet cell only detailed the horrors in Oakland. Patty was used to the high volume of the radio by now. The SLA didn't trust her. They kept the radio on full blast to drown out the whispers of their meetings. Patty didn't mind. A loud radio was far superior to the many things the SLA forced Patty to hear. The SLA offered her a new education. Taught her wrong from right. Riches from radicalism. When the radio wasn't screaming, members of the SLA took turns reading to Patty through the closet door. Mao. Marx, all the revolutions and their key leaders, and the SLA drilled their rigid politics into Patty's head. Patty's red nail polish was bourgeois. Marriage was bourgeois. Birthdays were bourgeois, too. Patty turned 20 in her cell without fanfare. But there was one sentiment the SLA repeated even more than the word bourgeois, a fact that Sink reminded her of daily, if not hourly. If the FBI came knocking, Patty would die. Period no negotiations. She would be a bloody pile of collateral damage. The SLA was so sure of an imminent visit from the FBI that Sink gave Patty her own sawed-off shotgun to keep with her in the closet. He showed her how to shoot it and break it down. Apparently, playing with guns was not bourgeois. That was rich. Patty's first lessons in marksmanship came from duck hunting with her father as a preteen. She already knew much of what Sink wanted to teach her, but Patty played along. Playing along was the only thing keeping Patty Hearst safe. Patty's life became a performance. Her tiny closet might as well have been center stage. Patty learned to nod with conviction. She asked about ideologies she had no interest in. She cocked her head as if to say, oh, really, tell me more, through the tear-soaked blindfold that sagged on her face. The SLA gradually rewarded Patty for this phony display of passion. Some days, they left the closet door open for her. Other times, she joined them for meals. Members even read newspaper clippings about her through the closet door as a courtesy. But the longer Patty remained in captivity, the less her name appeared in the news. The SLA painted a grim picture. They claimed no one was negotiating for Patty, and no one was coming to rescue her. And hey, even if they did, they'd be shot. Patty, too. Months passed. The SLA’s two jailed members continued to rot in prison. Patty's time as a pawn was waning, so was the press coverage surrounding her kidnapping. The SLA was stumped. To Sink, Patty was like the family chicken. Sure, you're supposed to kill it and eat it, but you'd become fond of it over time, too. He had no problem making this comparison to Patty's face. Sink told Patty that the SLA’s war council must decide her fate. He explained that there were two possible outcomes. They'd either ask Patty to join the SLA or they'd give orders to kill her and there was no in between. Truth be told, there was no war council and Sink had no interest in indoctrinating a Hearst into his army. What actually enticed Sink was the idea of stirring up a media frenzy with an heiress turned terrorist. He was ready to cash in Patty's family ties for a final flurry of headlines. In April, Sink approached Patty with a choice. The War Council has decided you can join us if you want to, or you can be released and go home again, Sink told her. The question made Patty's pulse quicken. She may have rearranged her political ideas to align with the SLA, but her critical thinking was still intact. She suspected there was no going home option. It was join or die, just like Sink told her once before. And after two months in captivity, Patty Hurst wasn't about to throw in the towel and die. Patty didn't flinch. I'll join you, she said. Patty slid the raggedy blindfold off of her eyes She saw Sink's expression for the first time That sinister grin that she often felt burning through her closet door The SLA had a new urban gorilla in its ranks A true convert from the upper echelons of the upper class Best of all, their new recruit had name recognition But that name recognition would be swiftly wiped away If Patty was to join the SLA, she needed a codename Sink selected one for her she was baptized as Tanya, spelled T A N I A, named after a woman who fought alongside Che Guevara during the revolution in Bolivia. The SLA jumped into action as quickly as Patty had agreed to join them. They drafted another communique, another tape, another script of signed sentiments for Patty to read. Patty Hearst made the tape to proclaim that Patty Hearst no longer existed. There was only Tanya now, and Tanya was going to be put to the test immediately. April 15, 1974, San Francisco. Patty Hearst burst through the doors of the Hibernia Bank branch at Noriega Street and 22nd Avenue, her general Marshal on one side of her, bloodthirsty soldiers to the other. It was time for Tanya's big debut. If the SLA were on a movie set, a fat X would have marked Patty's designated spot between the bank's two security cameras. And while the SLA started stuffing their bags with bills, Patty waltzed into the spotlight right on cue. Most robbers would pick a bank if it didn't have cameras, not the SLA. They picked this bank in San Francisco because of its security system. They wanted Patty, or Tanya, on film. They had to prove that their comrade was ready to fight for the people, M1 carbine in hand. This is Tanya, Patty cried at the cameras. She hoisted her gun into the air and fired as instructed. Bullets ripped into the ceiling. She was ready to act out her involvement. Act. Patty's scene at the bank was 100% pre-planned just like the scripts she was handed. But the bank robbery itself was very real. In under 90 seconds, the crew of Urban Gorillas were $10,000 richer and one member richer too. Patty kept playing her role, playing along. How long Patty Hearst wanted to play along though was up to her. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Patty Hearst didn't have a watch. She relied on her gut to tell the time. Her gut was all she had left. Five minutes passed, then 10, now 20. Shit, had her comrades really been gone that long? Patty crouched near a window in the back of the SLA's red and white Volkswagen. Her eyes darted out the window, across the street to Mel's Sporting Goods, then to the van's door handle back and forth like a ping-pong ball. Mel's door handle, Mel's door handle, stay, leave, stay, leave. A breeze whispered to Patty through the window. The cool air on her face felt like a miracle. It was the jolt of energy she needed. The news was stale, for one. Patty's parents were so shaken by word of her recruitment by the SLA that they retreated to Desi Arnaz's vacation home in Mexico. Apparently, they took the Hearst media hype with them. The newest SLA headquarters were also stale. One shack, three rooms, no hot water, no furniture, no stove, no electricity. Their food supply was starting to get stale again too. A steady diet of rice, beans, and peanut butter hollowed out Patty's cheekbones and rib cage. The 10 grand haul from the Hibernia bank job was already reduced to a sad sack of coins, and there was just enough lettuce left for a few errands. Fellow SLA soldiers, Tico and Yolanda, took Patty, ship Tanya, out to grab some supplies and pay a parking ticket. Apparently, even terrorists abide by the law sometimes. Today's re-entry into society was Patty's reward for her convincing display at the robbery. She was trusted as a real recruit now. Patty had strict orders this afternoon. Stay in the van and out of sight. She was too recognizable to the public after months of press coverage. 20 minutes passed, 20 minutes of alone time. 20 minutes while her unarmed captors were out of sight and their stockpile of weapons sat next to Patty on the bare middle floor of the van. Patty could have walked away. She could have run away screaming, arms flailing right back into the embrace of her comfortable former life. But something in Patty chose to stay, a fiber of fear, or maybe it was her gut again. Patty heard the scuffle before she saw it. Her comrade, Tico, squirmed on the street in front of Mel's, pinned to the ground by a shop clerk. More employees piled on top. One handcuff dangled from his wrists. He glared at her from the ground. Shit. Patty didn't know why Tico was in trouble, but she didn't need a reason right now. She just needed somewhere to point her gun. Patty plucked a submachine gun from the pile of firearms in the van. She pointed it out the window towards Mel's. She didn't shoot to kill, just to distract. 30 rounds weaved around the pylon and the recoil launched Patty backwards. 1,000 doses of adrenaline went straight to her trigger finger. She grabbed her own weapon next. A semi-automatic carbine. Three more shots rang out. Three more distractions to get her comrades back to the van. Tico and Yolanda scampered away from Mel's and into the VW. What the fuck took you so long, Tico asked. His temper soured the mood in the van. Apparently, his attempt to shoplift a bandolier backfired. Patty's mouth fell open. She hadn't just chosen to stay with the SLA, she chose to fight for them with guns ablazing, over a goddamn bandolier. Patty didn't have time to pity herself or her choices. She was on the run now, not as a kidnapping victim, as a common criminal. This wasn't pretend anymore. You didn't play along with automatic weapons in your hands. You were either a terrorist or you weren't. Patty wasn't the one with a gun pointed at her temple like she was in her kitchen a few months ago. She was the one with her finger on the trigger, and she pulled it over and over again. The lines about where Patty stood with the SLA were blurry at best, until now. Now, she drew a big, fat, black line between us and them. Patty was on the SLA's side. Put that in your next communique. The Volkswagen swerved through Englewood. It set out like a clunky red and white thumb. Tico insisted the cops catch up with them any minute. The SLA had to ditch their ride ASAP. Tico pointed his submachine gun at the first idle car he spotted, an unremarkable Pontiac. The driver retreated before Tico could make a threat. The three soldiers hauled their heavy artillery into their new sedan, and then Tico drove that baby as fast and as far as it would take them, which was two whole blocks. The car's engine shuddered, sputtered out, died right there in the street. Fuck. Time for a new ride. Another gun in another stranger's face. Another mad dash to a new vehicle. The SLA left the trail of terrorized citizens and abandoned cars around the wood. They raced farther and farther away from the scene of the crime. Farther away from their accidental clue for the police, too. Tico was so eager to escape the police that he overlooked the detail left inside the van. An unpaid parking ticket from West 84th Street. The same street as the SLA's three-room shack. It would be the police's ticket to finding the SLA. May 17, 1974. The tear gas came first. Two canisters shattered a side window at 1466 East 54th Street. The LAPD's 18 previous surrender announcements hadn't moved the SLA from their current hideout. Maybe a little mace would change their minds. The hiss of the gas canisters was the SLA's cue. Time to put all that weapons training to good use. After three months with no leads, the SLA's abandoned parking ticket led the authorities towards a flop house on East 54th Street. The LAPD arrived first, then the FBI SWAT agents. Reporters from KNXT followed, toting a new tool called the minicam. They didn't know at the time that they were about to make history with the first unplanned breaking news event broadcast live across the country. Bullets sped across the street in both directions. The SWAT team alone fired roughly 5,300 rounds in one hour. And no matter how much tear gas was launched into the house, how many bullets decorated the exterior of the flophouse, the SLA would not surrender. They choked on the gas, but their trigger figures never faltered. They aimed at the enemy through teary eyes, cycled through their arsenal of weapons, every shot more desperate than the last. The SLA prepared for a showdown like this. They were willing to die for their nebulous haphazard cause, for their literature of radical buzzwords and ideologies. New clouds of smoke mushroomed in the halls, not tear gas this time. Real smoke, from a real fire. No one knew for sure if the SLA started the flames, but from the street, It was clear that the flames would finish them. Smoke poured out the windows. The thick black clouds stretched toward the sky like arms ready to surrender. But the SLA chose death over surrender. A SWAT team bullet shattered the skull of Nancy Lynn. Camilla Hall received two fatal shots in the back. And the SLA's quote-unquote General Marshal, Donald DeFreeze, a.k.a. Sink, burned alive with his soldiers. A sudden silence punctuated the news coverage. It could be a ceasefire, more likely, it could mean that there were no survivors. But even that wasn't the most pressing matter at the moment. Every American watching the historic scene from the sofa buzzed with the same question. Was Patty Hearst in that burning house? Detective A pressed her ear to the front door, silence, no, wait, a buzz, the television. She gestured for Detective B to come in closer. He crept along the side of the guest house, this could be it, they could put the kibosh on this kidnapping right here, right now. Detective A gently jiggled the door handle to the bungalow. She pushed it open with her fingertips, the pair of detectives crept inside. They stalked down a dark hallway and tore the buzz. That's when they spotted her, Patty Hearst, not terrified, not tied up, sprawled out on the sofa, channel surfing. Are you alright? Patty tilted her head with an air of skepticism. I'd be better if you closed the door and didn't try to rescue me. In 2006, Patty Hearst once again appeared on TV screens across America, but she wasn't on the news for shooting up banks and sporting goods stores as part of a terrorist organization. This time, she played the role of a kidnapped character on Veronica Mars. You know, the teen Nora drama set at Hearst College. Patty made an appearance in season three as an influential college board trustee who vanishes from campus in what appears to be a kidnapping. As Veronica and her father soon learn, Patty's character, Selma Rose, didn't want to be found. Sound familiar? Patty Hearst was not caught in the police shootout that day back in May of 1974 when the SLA went up in flames. Instead, she was camped out at a Disneyland motel with fellow soldiers Tico and Yolanda. She and her comrades watched, along with millions of Americans, as the core of the SLA combusted on live television. She watched their fearless leader burn to a crisp. She watched the majority of the army fall to the so-called fascist police the SLA could have folded right then and there, but once again, Patty Hearst chose to fight. She lived on the run with the remnants of the SLA for another year. She graduated from gunplay to making pipe bombs, undeniable terrorist activity. Lucky for her targets, the SLA sucked at planning homemade explosives, and their carefully planned attacks often fizzled out, just like the SLA's momentum. And the FBI found the SLA in their weakest, most pathetic state in San Francisco in 1975. Patty was arrested as a full-fledged member of the SLA. Her performance as an urban guerrilla ended almost immediately. Patty renounced her radicalism almost as quickly as she had accepted it. She slipped back into heiress mode on the stand in court. Tanya was dead, and Patty Hearst lived to tell the tale. She testified that the SLA drugged and brainwashed her over the course of two painstaking years. Her body seemed to confirm the tale. Her frame shrank to 87 pounds and her IQ had plummeted from 130 to 112. Still, the court was unmoved by Patty's claims. She'd had chances to flee and she literally shot those chances down. In 1976, Patty was found guilty of robbing a bank and using a firearm during the commission of a felony. The court slapped her with seven years in prison. But Patty was a Hearst again, and Hearst didn't go to prison. She served only 22 months of her federal sentence before President Carter commuted her in 1979, thanks, of course, to a campaign organized by Mommy and Daddy Hurst. And then later, in 2001, President Bill Clinton pardoned Patty Hurst. As a free woman... Patty Hearst never entered the workforce. She claimed her family had enough money that she didn't need to. Beyond that, she just didn't want to. Classic bourgeoisie. Patty Hearst knew how to play the right role at the right time. She thrust her fist in the air, proclaiming her status as an urban gorilla at one moment. She weaved a story of terror and brainwashing the next. Only one of those things, though, can really be true. Patty Hearst either acted when she was in the SLA or she acted innocent for every second of her testimony. Either way, she gave the performance of a lifetime. And director John Waters saw the potential. Her batshit crazy story fits that John Waters kind of camp. Hell, he invented that kind of camp. John Waters, the transgressive director, gave Patty Hearst small roles in the movies Serial Bomb and Crybaby in the early 1990s and that spurred on additional film and TV appearances in Biodome, Frasier, and Cecil B. Demented. Even after the turn of the century, Veronica Mars was itching to add a Patty Hearst element to its repertoire of noirish crimes. Her appearance in season three didn't reintroduce the plight of Patty Hearst to a new generation. She needed no introduction. There have been eight movies about her story, one TV miniseries, an episode of Drunk History, countless songs from Patti Smith to Frank Turner with some rumors about the Hall & Oates tune Rich Girl Caught in Between. Yet nowhere in that pile of media do we ever confirm the truth about Patti Hurst. Even decades after her kidnapping, we still can't tell when she was acting. People can't get enough of Patti Hurst's performance, of her enduring, edgy mystique, the kind of mystique that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast, because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis.